Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you. If someone didn't already welcome you, uh, welcome you this morning to Redemption Hill Church. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you've come to worship this great and glorious and holy and awesome God that we serve. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, as we do each, most each and every week. We've been in Exodus. Uh, Those of you who've been around, we've been in Exodus for over a year now. And The last five months or so, we've been working through the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, and all the different laws and statutes that God gave through Moses to the people Israel. And this study through the law has been a rich study for us, at least it has been for me. Uh, We've seen what the law reveals to us about God's character and tells us what God is like, what pleases him, uh, what his will is. The law also Um, shows us our own sinfulness. It it points out all the ways in which we fall short, in which we are not like God. And so the law always functions to point us to Christ, telling us about our great need for salvation. So our study through the law has been rich, but I want to make sure this morning that as we've been working through the book of Exodus, that we don't get lost in the weeds. At its heart, Exodus is not just a loose collection of random laws that were just sort of arbitrarily, you know, one day God said, I think I'm just going to show up and give these people a bunch of rules. No, Exodus is a story. It's a narrative. And these laws are given in the context of this story. And this story is a powerful story. In fact, the story of Exodus is so powerful because not just the amazing miracles we see, the parting of the Red Sea and plagues and and God speaking from a burning bush, it's a powerful story because it's part of a larger story. Exodus, yes, is about the history of Israel, but it has to do with the very history of the human race. It's a part of this larger story about how we, in Adam and Eve, fell into sin How we as a human race have been separated from God because of that sin and we now live in a world that has fallen, a world that's broken. And we are enslaved to sin, separated from God. But this story is also a story of grace. It's a story about a God who is working to bring about rescue and restoration and salvation for the people that he loves, not just for the nation Israel but for a people from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation. So this story is bigger than just Israel. This story stretches from Adam through Abraham to Moses and into the New Testament in the working of Jesus. And it touches your story and my story. This story is one that's not yet complete because we're still living in it and we're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ who will bring the final chapter of this story to a close when he comes back to bring all things to their glorious conclusion. So, yes, we've been studying laws and commandments, but it's part of this dramatic and beautiful and true and personal story. Today we're jumping back into the narrative of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 24 this morning, and we're picking back up with the story, with a sequence of events. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of exciting and momentous events in the book of Exodus And most of you have, I'm sure, read at least the first half because it reads like an action film. I mean, there's all of these amazing things that are happening. Chapter 24 is probably a scene that you are less familiar with if you've read the book of Exodus, probably one that you may have read over rather quickly. But what happens in Exodus chapter 24 is a moment 
that is no less significant than the most dramatic moments in the rest of the story. It's a moment that is so profound, so startling, so significant that it demands our attention this morning. It's one of those moments in the book of Exodus that matters not just for the story of what's happening there in the desert. It's a moment that captures the echo of themes that are begun in Genesis, and it's a moment that foreshadows later moments in the story, moments that will happen in the incarnation of Jesus and beyond, even things that have not yet happened yet, things that we are still waiting on when Jesus comes back. God has gathered his people at Sinai after bringing them out of Egypt, and he's brought them to this mountain for a reason. He's entering into a covenant with his people. He's formalizing his relationship with them. This covenant is essential for what God planned to do for his people and what God planned to do through his people. If you remember the story, the people had heard the Ten Commandments with their own ears. God spoke to them from the mountain. There as the mountain shook and they saw his his glory there and they heard the thunder. And the people had said, okay, that's enough. Moses, you go talk to God for us, please. So Moses had gone up the mountain and God had given him, following those Ten Commandments, the book of the covenant, this list of laws that showed how they were to live in the land. And so now we're coming to what happens next. The, the terms of the covenant, as it were, have been given. All the details have been spelled out. And so now what needs to happen is this covenant that God has been revealing through Moses, it needs to be made official. It needs to be ratified. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 24. Let's read verses 1 through 11. Then he, which is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Lord, we're struck this morning, both in this text and even in the songs we've sung, we're struck this morning with the reality of your holiness. There is no one like you. You stand alone as the God who is the maker of all things, worthy of all glory, who is holy, holy, holy. We do draw near to you this morning. 
with an appropriate sense of fear, knowing that you are not to be trifled with, you're not to be treated lightly. This matters. But we, we come also in joyful confidence because we come in the name of your son. We come under the blood of Jesus and we come expectant to see you this morning in your word and to receive your truth. So we ask that through your spirit you would work in us today for your glory. Amen. So very obviously this scene in chapter 24 centers on the covenant that God is making with Israel. This is all about God's covenant. It's a covenant that includes law, yes, and we've been studying that law for five months. But this covenant is founded on grace. It's founded on grace. This is God giving himself, revealing himself to his people and meeting their deepest need, that they would know God. This covenant extends grace to God's people. As the covenant is confirmed, we see three movements as the scene unfolds. And these movements display the grace of God at work. There's three ways in which we see grace at work. And the first is in verses 1 and 2. We see this in in what you could call the covenant invitation. As God invites Moses, Aaron and his sons, and 70 representatives of the people, he invites them to draw near. This is an invitation to consummate this covenant. And we learn that grace invites us to draw near. Now, what stands out to us here is that something drastic has changed. I know it was a long time ago, but back in chapter 19, if you remember when they first got to Mount Sinai, they were warned not to come up to the mountain. God said, don't draw near. Don't even touch the foot of the mountain. Don't even let your animals come near and touch the mountain. In Exodus 19.10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You see, Sinful man cannot simply climb up to where God is. God was coming down to set foot on that mountain, and he is holy, and we are not. Holy God, sinful man, and that means there must be a safe separation. This is the sad consequence of Adam's sin in the garden. Remember, this story is part of a bigger story. And in the early chapters of that story, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. And following their rebellion, what happens? Among other things, they are sent out of the garden. They, couldn't, they could no longer be with God, walking with him, talking with him. They were exiled from his presence. And they had no way back in Genesis 3.24 says God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Once man sins, there's no way back. There's now a separation. Under normal circumstances, left to ourselves, we can't make our way back to God. We could never draw near. Adam and Eve couldn't go back to the garden. Israel, in chapter 19, was not to go up onto the mountain where God was, and you and I can never draw near to God on our own either. It's because of sin. It's because of sin. Get this. 
It's because of sin, not because God doesn't desire to be with us. No, in fact, that is his desire. God desires to dwell with his people, to have relationship with them, for us to be in his presence. He he created Eden to be a place where he could walk with Adam and Eve. We're made in his image to be able to relate to him. So it is sin that has interrupted this gracious relationship. In fact, God's gracious plan is to undo this curse. Because he desires to be with us, God is intent on making a way for sinful man to come back into the presence of a holy God. And it is his grace that invites us to draw near. It is this grace that is offered here through the covenant. In chapter 19, the people couldn't come up. They couldn't come up onto the mountain because the covenant was not yet in force. This grace had not yet been applied to them. But now with the covenant being established, God himself is opening up the way. And he's inviting them to draw near. Moses, who is the mediator for the nation. Aaron and his sons, who are to be the priests for the nation. And 70 elders who represented the people as a whole. They are invited to come up to where God is. On his invitation, with his blessing. After revealing the terms of the covenant, God says... And now, once this is put in place, I want you to draw near, to come up. This is the covenant invitation, to draw near to God. That's what grace does. Grace invites us to draw near. After the covenant invitation, we see in verses 3 through 8, a covenant ceremony. A covenant ceremony. And what we learn here is that grace not only invites us to draw near, but grace provides what is needed. It provides and it purifies. It makes us fit. As we noted already, sin is what separates us from God, but God's doing something about our sin. He's providing a way for forgiveness. He's purifying those who've been defiled by sin. The first thing that Moses does when he comes back down the mountain is report to the people in verse 3 the words of God. He tells them everything that God had said on the mountain, all the rules and the statutes that applied those principles of the Ten Commandments. And the people give their amen in verse 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now this sounds familiar because they already said something similar again back in chapter 19. God had said in chapter 19, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses tells them, and the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So back in chapter 19, they're saying, listen, whatever it is that God says, we'll obey it. Now here in chapter 24, they're saying, well, now that we know the details, now that we've heard all the things that the Lord has said, we still stand by that commitment. We will obey And they affirm their commitment to this covenant. So with that verbal commitment in place, Moses now gets to work on the ceremony. And the first thing he does is write down words. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. The written word would be a record for them of God's will. It would be a written record of everything that they commanded to do. This was to be a covenant document that contained all the terms of what they were agreeing to. From ancient times to the present day, isn't it so true that the written word of God is always essential for the people of God? 
They don't just entrust it to their memories. Moses writes it down. The word of God is central to our worship, our identity, and our relationship with God. The covenant community must prize the written record of God's will, God's word, God's gracious plans for us. So Moses writes down God's word, but then he starts building things. He starts building an altar, and he builds 12 pillars there in verse 4. The altar would obviously be for sacrifice, and the altar represented God. This symbolized God's involvement, his commitment to the covenant. And the 12 pillars obviously represent the 12 tribes. So you have two parties of this covenant. You have God and you have the nation. And there is there, built with stone, permanent records of their commitment that was being made there at the mountain. And then they put this altar to work. Moses plans these sacrifices in verse 5, young men of the people of Israel offered two different types of sacrifices. There's first burnt offerings, and then secondly, the peace offering. Two types of sacrifice are made, and the order of these sacrifices is important. First comes the burnt offering, and the burnt offering is meant to deal with sin. Again, if the people are to draw near to God, then sin has to be dealt with. Punishment must fall. But God in his grace is graciously providing a substitute. The death of the sacrificial animal would be accepted in place of the death of guilty sinners. So for the burnt offering, the sacrificial animal was killed and it was completely consumed on the altar as an atonement for sin. Completely given to God. The peace offering came second and the peace offering is different. Part of the peace offering was put on the altar, typically the, the fatty portions, which was considered the, the best part. That was offered to God. And then the rest was to be cooked and eaten by the worshiper. So while the burnt offering is completely given to God, the peace offering, sometimes called a fellowship offering, was shared by both God and the worshiper. And this offering was meant to picture the fellowship that they now had with God. The sin had been dealt with. Forgiveness and atonement had been made. Now God and man could come together. The, the Hebrew word for peace that's here in peace offering is the word shalom. That there's now harmony. There is peace between God and man. So both parties are now at peace. The hostility, the wrath, the guilt, it's gone. And there is now restoration. There's shalom. And then Moses does something that maybe sounds strange to us, but something very important. He does some things with the blood of the sacrifice. He takes half of the blood from the sacrifices and he throws it on the altar. See that in verse 6. Why does Moses do this? Why is he doing this? Well, this is all symbolic. Remember, this is a covenant ceremony and everything has meaning. And throwing the blood against the altar was to, was to mark and to symbolize in a visible way that the sacrifice for sin had been made and that God had accepted that sacrifice. The, the visual picture of the blood on the altar would have, would have demonstrated to the people that God was committed now to this covenant. It was sealed in blood. God's signature, so to speak, had been made. 
And then Moses reads the law to Israel. Once again, he's already verbally reported it to him. Now he stands up in a ceremonial sense and reads for them every word that God had commanded. And once again, they promise to obey. Verse 7, he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. You might say, doesn't this sound redundant? They already said this just a few verses before. Well, keep in mind, this is ceremonial, and it is being formalized right here. Many years ago, it was almost 16 years ago now, I asked my wife if she would marry me, and she said yes. She agreed to marry me. Yes. Thumbs up for me. I know. I'm a blessed man. On that day, she said, yes, I, I, I will marry you. But then four and a half months later, we stood in front of a gathering of people in our church, and she was asked do you take this man to be your husband? And she said, I do. So there was a verbal agreement that happened before when we got engaged, but there was a ceremony that made it official, and there was the exchanging of rings to symbolize our commitment to one another in marriage. That's similar to what's happening here. The people had already agreed earlier, made a verbal commitment to obey, but now it's being made official. It's like saying, I do, in a wedding. And then Moses takes some of the blood, and it says that he sprinkles it on the people. He throws it on the people. And this might gross some of you out, but consider the meaning and the symbolism of what's happening here. The sprinkling of blood on the people is to symbolize that their sins had been forgiven, that, that the atonement made by the burnt offering and the same blood that marked the altar also applied to them. God had owned his part, promising to forgive, and that forgiveness applied to them. They were now accepted by God. And secondly, it shows that they too are bound to the covenant. They are sealed with blood. They are now obligated to do everything they've promised to do. So think about this scene. There's these basins filled with blood, and it's being put on the altar. It's being put on the people. And as Moses, you're probably taking a, 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 a wad of hyssop or some other plant like that, using it to, to sprinkle it and splash it out over the crowd, think about how those little droplets would have stained their clothes, probably permanently. For the rest of their lives, or at least until those clothes wore out, it would have been a daily reminder of God's grace towards them that they were a people who had been given forgiveness. They were a people who belonged to God, and they were a people who were obligated to obey him. It was a sign of their covenant relationship with him. Just like every day this ring reminds me of my obligation to Sarah, my promises to her, but also the joy and the privilege it is to have her as my wife. So this putting of blood on the people would have dramatically symbolized that this covenant was now in place. They were marked as those who were forgiven and as those who belonged to God. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen a covenant ceremony that's sort of marked by sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Back in Genesis 15, God had made an earlier covenant with Abraham. If you remember that story, Abraham had been instructed to sacrifice a number of different animals, and he divided them in half and lined them up. But then Abraham didn't walk the aisle. God did. God himself passed between the pieces of the animals, saying that he would be the one to take on all the obligations of that covenant. And it won't be the last time we see a covenant enacted by the shedding of blood. And in Isaiah 52, verse 15, we're told about the servant of the Lord who had come to bring salvation. And it says that he would sprinkle many nations. 
Think about that. It wouldn't just be the Hebrew people who would be sprinkled, who would be brought into covenant relationship with God, who would be forgiven of sin and marked as those who belong to the Lord. The night Jesus was betrayed at his last supper, the night before he was crucified, in Matthew 26 it says he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, what is happening here in Exodus is important for the story of Israel. But this is echoing a theme that we find all throughout Scripture. A theme that climaxes when the Lamb of God dies on a cross. And the cross is stained with blood. And Jesus laid down his life to secure the forgiveness of God for sinners like you and me. To cleanse us with his blood. Guys, this is what grace does. And we see it here in the covenant ceremony that grace provides forgiveness and atonement. And grace cleanses and purifies those who had been guilty of sin. It is the grace of God and the grace of God alone that can make us fit for his presence. And that leads us to the third movement. We find the covenant celebration in verses 9 through 11. And we learn here that grace finally brings us into the presence of God. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, this is in verse 9. And the 70 elders of Israel went up. These are men who have confessed their loyalty to the covenant. These are men whose sins have been symbolically judged on an altar and men who have been splattered with the blood, marked as those forgiven and devoted to God. So they now are able to respond to this invitation and to go up onto the mountain. And verse 10 says, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now that the ceremony is complete, Israel, symbolized by this smaller group of men, can draw near to God. And something remarkable happens. I mentioned earlier that this moment is a profound moment, even though it's one that you may be less familiar with in the story of Exodus. What is so amazing is that they see God. They see him. And all of us are curious. We're thinking, well, what did God look like? What did they see? And it's interesting that no form is described. There's no opportunity given for us to maybe try to make a painting or a statue that could look like God that we might be tempted to worship. God is not described in his form, but what's described is basically the pavement that he's standing on. And even this is something that Moses has to grasp for words to describe. He uses the phrase, as it were. He's not saying it literally was. He's saying, as it were. He's saying, I'm trying to find words to describe this vision that we saw. And he says that the pavement that, that God stood on was like the very heaven for clearness. A brilliant jewel. It's envisioning, in a sense, God enthroned in the heavens 
with the skies above us as his footstool. The fact that they beheld God is shocking to us because Scripture often tells us that under normal circumstances, this would be fatal. The sheer holiness of God would be too much for a sinful man to endure. In Exodus 19.21, remember the warning. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. God knew that there's this inner longing for us to have this transcendent experience, to actually behold the glory of God. Can you imagine something that is greater than that? And God knew that that even though the people were afraid and they would be intimidated by by the thunder and the cloud that that wrapped the mountain, that there would be some that deep down inside wanted nothing more than to catch a glimpse of God. And he said, don't let them break through to look because they will perish if they do. Next is 33.20. Later, Moses would ask to see God's face. And God says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. In 1 Timothy 6:16, 6, Paul writes that he alone has immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So all throughout scripture we we seem to learn that we can't see God. We can't look on him in the fullness of his glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. So how do we reconcile those verses with this verse which very plainly says they saw the God of Israel? I'm glad you asked. There's a couple things I can share with you. Well, first of all, they were there seeing by God's invitation. He's the one inviting them to draw near and showing himself to them. And God can make exceptions when he wants to. They had not broken through to tread on forbidden ground. They had been invited to draw near. Second, these people had been marked by the blood. They had received God's gracious provision of forgiveness. The thing that kept them from enduring God's presence was sin. But God had just taken care of that. He had cleansed them and made them fit to draw near. And third, Scripture teaches us that God is three persons. Although he is one in his essence or being, he is triune. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not just some abstract idea that that theologians argue about. It's something very practical. And to put it in Trinitarian terms, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And God is one. There is one God. So we affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three in one. And this passage does not say that they saw the Father. This passage does not say even that they saw Yahweh. That's the the name of God, the covenant name of God. It says they saw Elohim, which is a title for God. And a title that belongs just as much to the Son as it does to the Father. I believe here that they are seeing the second person of the Trinity. They are seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. They're seeing what Ezekiel saw in his vision of the glorious throne room of God. They're seeing what Isaiah saw when he saw the throne room. We sang the words of Isaiah this morning, holy, holy, holy. They saw not the Father, but the Son. In John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says this, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the one who who is the manifestation of the very glory of God because he is God. 
And so while no one has seen the Father, no one has seen God in that sense, we can behold God and his glory in the face of Christ. And that's what these people were experiencing that day on the mountain. And notice, they not only caught this glimpse of him, they not only saw him. It says that they saw him in verse 10, but in verse 11 it says they beheld God. This is a different word, and it's more than just a glance. It's an intensified looking. It means they gazed upon God in his glory, and it indicates that this vision of God, God's appearance to them, was sustained It wasn't just a little five-second glimpse. He remained there before them. They beheld him, and as they marveled at his majesty, it says they ate and they drank. What they did was partook of their portion of the peace offering. Those animals that had been slain to, to symbolize fellowship with God, they're now consuming their part of the sacrifice in the very presence of their God. They're having a meal with their maker. They're having supper with their Savior. They're fellowshipping with God in his presence. Eating in the ancient world always communicated something very significant. You would never eat. You would never break bread with an enemy or a rival or someone you didn't trust. You only ate with family or with friends or with an ally. Sharing a meal demonstrated acceptance and approval, even partnership. And so that's what's being symbolized here is that they have that kind of relationship with God because of his grace, because of the provision of the covenant. While we might have feared that it would not be safe for them to to not even be in his presence, much less eat and drink in his presence, it says here in verse 11 that God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He did not judge them. He did not consume them with his holiness and his glory. Why? Because blood was on the altar, and the blood was also on them. And God, in his grace, had invited them to draw near. So even though they are sinful men, even though this nation is sinful, through the grace of the covenant, they draw near to God. Sin is forgiven, and they fellowship with their covenant God in his presence. They beheld him and ate and drank. I think this is one of the most profound little statements in this entire book, that they beheld him and ate and drank. Friends, this is the goal of grace. It's the goal of grace, that the people of God would be in the presence of God, beholding the glory of God because of the provision of grace in the covenant. That's the goal of grace. And that's why this story is so profound because it's part of and reflects this greater story in which these same principles are at work. The same grace is given to us today. Not through this old covenant with altars and pillars and sacrificed animals. This same grace is given to us today through Jesus Christ. And what happens here in this scene is a beautiful picture of salvation. That God gives us his written word. That God atones for our sins, providing a substitutionary sacrifice through Jesus. That God brings us into this covenantal relationship with himself and makes promises to us. Promises sealed in blood. And then God draws us into his glorious presence. Guys, this is what we were made for. To behold God. 
to be in his presence, to know him. This is what was lost in the Garden of Eden. This is what's being portrayed for us here in Israel. And this is what is made a spiritual reality today in the church. As we enjoy the presence of God's spirit, as those who are under the blood of Christ, and we draw near to him in faith. But this is also our future destiny when Christ returns. That one day we too, with these eyes, will behold him. And we will eat and drink in his presence. Our sin does separate us from a holy God. But through the forming of a gracious covenant, we can be brought near. It's the death of Jesus that provides atonement. But listen, it's only those who are under the blood of Christ that can draw near. It is only those who've been cleansed and purified by by the blood of Christ that have their sins forgiven and who can come into God's presence with joy and anticipation rather than experiencing his presence as a threat and as a danger because of the consuming holiness of his righteous wrath. Hebrews 9.13 says that if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, he's referring to the old covenant, this old system of purification, The author of Hebrews continues, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. There's a new covenant in place today, one that is ratified not with the blood of of oxen and goats and bulls like the old days. It's been ratified by the blood of Christ. And the cross is marked with his blood, showing that the necessary sacrifice is made and atonement is complete. It's done, and God is satisfied. And those of us who are marked with his blood, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we are accepted by God. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. And so Hebrews urges us to draw near. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart, with the full assurance of faith. This morning, Pastor Stephen gave a great overview of the doctrine of salvation in our Sunday school class. And he gave a definition of faith that involves knowledge. We have to understand the truth. And I'm explaining truth to you this morning. But it also requires affirmation, that we acknowledge it and agree that it's true and that it's good and that it's beautiful and that it's right. But there's a third aspect of saving faith. It calls for trust. It calls for reliance. Friends, the way is open to God today. But you must come to Jesus and believe that he is true, that he is the son of God. You must affirm the truth of his gospel and personally entrust yourself to Christ and depend on him because there's no other way to enter into the holy presence of God and not be consumed. 
There's no other way to stand before him and gaze upon him with joy as your savior instead of experiencing his presence as judgment and wrath. If you do trust in Jesus, then there's a celebration that is to be had. The meal once enjoyed by Moses and the leaders of Israel foreshadows a future meal to come and one that is much larger. In Isaiah 25, 6, God says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Think about the the imagery here. A mountain and God preparing a meal. It's a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And this meal is made by God for all peoples. It's bigger than Israel. Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's a table. There's a meal. There's a celebration that is coming, a celebration of what God's grace has accomplished for his people. Revelation 19, the angel says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a meal coming, a celebration coming where those who are saved from sin, those who have received the grace of God through the new covenant in Christ, we will share that meal. We take communion today, the Lord's Supper, to not only remember the sacrifice of Jesus, but in an anticipation of this meal that we will one day share with Christ in the age to come. We take the bread and the cup as symbols of our fellowship with God through faith in Jesus a symbol of his provision for us and the cleansing and forgiveness we have through his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood. And we look forward to that day when Christ will return and we will see him face to face. Friends, this is the goal of grace. This is why God made a covenant with Israel and it's why he sent his son Jesus to bring about a new and better covenant, one in which we can participate through faith in Christ. So let me ask you, friends, have you responded to God's gracious call? Because he's sending out invitations today, invitations to this meal. Will you be there? Those who trust in Christ will be marked by his blood, and they will be there on that day to behold God and to eat and to drink. He summons us today not to Sinai, but God calls us today to his son, to a better sacrifice on a different altar, so that we can be forgiven and brought near. Friends, if you don't know Christ today, the world offers you all sorts of things that promise to make you happy, that promise to make you whole, that promise to satisfy your deepest longings. But this is what you were made for, and nothing else comes close. This and this alone is what we were made for. There's a lot of confused people in our world looking for something that's missing, But if you look outside of Christ, you'll never find it. For those of us who know Christ, who've received this work of grace, I hope that today you've been impacted with the beauty of God's grace. The startling reversal that God is bringing about through his son Jesus, that those far off and guilty can be forgiven and brought near. And that we can fellowship with him. I hope that moves you to awe and to gratitude and to joy, and I hope it gives you an anticipation for the return of Christ, and that day when we will see him face to face. I ask you to pray with me as we thank God for his amazing provision of grace in the gospel and through his son Jesus. 
Lord, as we read this story in Exodus, we can't help but notice how this fits so beautifully with the entire story of Scripture and what it is that you are at work doing. You graciously provide for sinful people to be made right with you, to come into a relationship with you. And Lord, if there's any among us today who are still far off from you, who have not yet pledged themselves to you, who've not yet entrusted themselves to your promise, who've not yet repented of sin and trusted in the gospel, I pray that today they would come to the cross, the place where the blood of your son was shed for atonement. I pray that today they would come to Jesus to partake through faith of his body and blood, to be marked as those who belong to you. I pray that you would save sinners and that you would also stir those of us who have received this grace, that you would stir us to worship and joy and awe. We thank you, God, for your grace towards us. Apart from Christ, we have no hope, but in Jesus, we experience the fulfillment of everything that we were made to be and experience and enjoy. Lord, we glorify and praise your name for your greatness, your glory, and your grace. Amen.